Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. And for those who are watching, you can see we have a guest today. We have Carrie Ann Mendoza on with us. Uh, she's the co-founder and editor-at-large for The Canary, which I'm sure everyone who listens to the show is familiar with. It's a very well-known leftist UK publication. Um, and she's also the author of Austerity, Demolition of the Welfare State, and the Rise of the Zombie Economy. So thank you so much for joining us, Carrie Ann. Well done managing that title. That is expert. <laughs> I, yay, I succeeded with the introduction. So, oh my God. So I just want to state for those who are watching, I'm in my niece's bedroom and I just realized her closet is wide open. Those are not, those are children's clothing behind me, but it's not mine. I'm not that small. I apologize for how this looks. I am uh, traveling today. So I'm, my stuff is everywhere and I'm not at home and uh, this is where I got stuck recording. So it'll, it'll kind of take a little edge off of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I, I'm kind of enjoying it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it's entertaining. Um, but the reason, so actually I'm really glad that we finally got you on the show because you're someone we've wanted to have on the show for quite some time. It's unfortunate the circumstances that brought you on this time around though, because last week your Twitter account was suspended uh, there seemed to be a pretty well-organized campaign to get your account suspended, I think, by, like, mass reporting it by pro-Israel people mixed in with, like, right-wing labor people. You can give us some more details about that. But you tweeted out uh, what I thought was a pretty straightforward, not not offensive, even if for, like, even for, like, pro-Israel zealots, not that offensive of a tweet because uh, people say that kind of stuff all the time. But you tweeted out something that was um, pro-Palestine, and mm -hmm. you got suspended not that much later. So why don't you tell us what happened in that instance, um, and then we can kind of go from there. Because it was pretty jarring to see how quickly you were just, like, taken offline. Yeah, I mean, it was really... I mean, they've been trying, obviously, to suppress us for some time, so this one's got quite a tail on it. Um, Basically, this started with these bogus accusations of anti-Semitism, and then they created a sort of astroturf, um, bogus sort of um, anti-hate group um, called Stop Funding Fake News, which was basically two people in a shed, um, which, you know, was really, didn't reveal their donors, didn't reveal, you know, even who they were, but yet were taken up as this sort of legit organisation. And they began targeting advertisers to not advertise on our site because we were fake news. I mean, this despite the fact that we're transparent about how we raise our funds. We're a reader subscribed, you know, kind of paper. So we're supported by the people who read us. Um, there aren't any external donors um, that are, you know, are not reported. I'm also regulated independently by Impress, which was actually approved by the Leveson Inquiry. Um, into the sort of nefarious activities of, of journalism a, a few years back. So, and that, so our actual kind of standards are above and beyond those of the establishment media that are calling us fake news and unaccountable, which is extremely rich. So that's where they started. That didn't work, obviously, because we've got a lot of reader support. We just changed our business model and said, great, we didn't want to rely on advertising funding anyway. Um, we're you know, much more comfortable actually being supported by our readers. So that was that. And then they began a process of lawfare, which is still underway, where they set up vexatious libel suits against people for the most ridiculous of, of reasons, knowing that many of us don't have the resources 
to actually fight them, again, in an effort to kind of quell free speech on this issue. And, and the issue at hand really is solidarity with the Palestinian people who are living under illegal occupation and apartheid and socialism itself, you know, ch challenging the, the sort of iniquitous economic system that, that we're living under. So you basically have then sort of all of the groups that are against either of those issues combining um, and using every method at their disposal to attempt to stop us simply criticising them openly. So all of these, they keep going and we keep going because we're not going anywhere. And now the latest one is this Twitter issue where they're deliberately and fraudulently mass reporting tweets that are completely innocuous in order to have enough suspensions or lockouts on an account um, that it's automatically then suspended. So the first wave of this, literally the first tweet that I was suspended for, I shared an image from a widely reported true story from 2016 where a guy was at a remembrance service wearing a poppy on his lapel and a Nazi swastika tattoo. And I tweeted saying the hypocrisy of the far right summed up in one image. They mass reported that tweet for hate speech, as if the Nazi was in a protected category. So you have people willing to create na literal Nazis as a protected category, wow. <laughs> as far as, as to, to pretend that I am an anti-Semite, which is, I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, and then the next wave actually was I'd, I was talking to um, a potential person who had a story they may want me to report, and I gave them my own email address on Twitter to contact me. That was reported as doxing. What? My own email like address. You doxed, you doxed yourself? Is that? I doxed myself. And then we had the leading kind of members of the witch hunt, which I don't need to name, we all know who they are, um, then tweeting, um, saying, oh, great, um, I got Kerry Mendoza suspended again. She's had to take down these tweets about me. And it was nothing to do with anything I'd even tweeted about her. So I was able to, you know, you're able to share and go, this is the truth. But they're just lying constantly. Um, and they don't even care that we can prove the fact that they're lying because that's the kind of self-referential nature of this witch hunt is that they only listen to each other. So... Essentially, they accuse you of being an anti-Semite five times. And then the next time they accuse you, they say this isn't the first time they've been accused. Mm -hmm. And they just re-go really over the last five times, even though each one of those times was com is a complete fabrication. And you really, what this has actually done is ended up creating a scenario where it's made the price of solidarity really enormous. For, for people, you know, you can risk losing your job. These people are emailing people's employers, you know, and, and you know, having Twitter campaigns against their companies saying, why are you employing this anti-Semite? You know, the same goes for politicians who are brave enough to stand up and say this stuff in public. They're then getting suspended or expelled from their political party under bogus allegations of anti-Semitism. And it really is, I mean, it, it brings back the kind of McCarthy witch hunt you know it's exactly the same energy of, of that witch hunt and exactly the same level of complete willingness to gaslight and lie 
without any shame whatsoever um, and engage in the most outrageous intellectual and moral dishonesty in order to shut down what is legitimate criticism and fundamentally at its heart an anti-racist cause right with accusations of racism i mean what's interesting here too is um is it's so much worse it seems in the uk than the us uh mm. there's been this sustained campaign that really that really took off with the attacks on jeremy corbyn and we know yeah. it was an israel lobby like an israeli government push campaign yeah. that was used by like the right wingers in the labor party to try and mm. shut down this left-wing candidate can you talk a little bit about that we because our our audience is we have, I mean, we think we have a generally, we have a pretty international audience, but it's mostly, you know, we do mostly talk about American politics. Um, and this is not something aside from maybe, you know, uh, one of our Congress people, Ilhan Omar, getting attacked for saying something mean about the Israel lobby. This is not something that has the same level of, um, I guess, the same level of weight as it does in the UK, maybe because in the US we're more obsessed with calling people Russian assets than anti-Semites. Um, but yeah. can you talk a bit about what, you know, how this started with the uh, attempt to really get, to, to really destroy the campaign of Jeremy Corbyn and destroy the left wing of the Labour Party? Yeah, I think really to kind of, to understand this witch hunt in, it, in its fullest, you really do have to go back to 2014 and Operation Protective Edge. I was actually in Gaza for Operation Protective Edge, reporting from the ground. So I actually witnessed this with, with my own eyes and I was reporting at the time, um, this hideous offensive. I mean, everything Israel, apartheid Israel does to, to the Palestinians is, is egregious. But, you know, those of us who were there in 2014 know this, is, this was particularly um, vicious. You know, thousands of people dead, you know, just, it's difficult to describe just kind of the horror that, that you were witnessing at the time. And it actually managed to make it out of independent media into the establishment media and into parliament in 2014. And there was a big turn in, in, in kind of public sentiment around that time away from apartheid Israel and in favor of, of Palestinian solidarity. And that really scared the shit. <laughs> Sorry, it's <more. laughs> Oh, you're allowed to, you're allowed to. No, 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 it scared the heck. <laughs> scared the heck out of, out of all of the all of the people that were invested um obviously in that apartheid system remaining intact and the occupation remaining unchallenged so and then in 2015 off the back of that while we still had Ed Miliband as leader of the Labour Party he was Jewish um the party actually voted to recognize Palestinian statehood so you had a big pro-Palestinian public mood you had you know, the, the main opposition party with a Jewish leader actually recognizing Palestinian statehood. And it was at that point in 2015 that the Jewish labor movement were refounded with the express purpose of being a Zionist organization. You can join even if you're not Jewish. There's nothing really Jewish about the Jewish labor movement. It's essentially a, a Zionist lobby group. Um, and their, their express intention was to kind of recapture the Labour Party and the public mood in favour of apartheid Israel. Um, and then, of course, the worst thing in the world from their perspective happened. Jeremy Corbyn becomes the leader of the Labour Party. That was bad enough. But then in 2017, he came within 2,000 votes of becoming Prime Minister. <laughs> 2,000 votes. I and mean, it's, it's a whisker. 
you know, and if he had become prime minister, then you would have had the UK basically withdrawing from neoliberalism, becoming a socialist state and becoming an anti-apartheid state. And obviously that was not going to be allowed. Um, so then we had this drive and they, they came out with so many spirits about, about Jeremy Corbyn. You know, first of all, it was he was a magic grandpa, his cardigan, going back to allotment. Then he was a terrorist sympathiser. Then he was a Czech spy. You know, just it was ridiculous. Oh, I miss this. Ridiculous. Oh, I miss, I miss oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, this ran for a good, like, month, even though it was complete nonsense, was that he was a Czech spy. So that happened. It's, you know, in line with the Russiagate smears, they, they thought maybe they could bring Russiagate, you know, in, in and kind of take Corbyn out that way. That didn't work. So then it was the anti-Semitism stuff and, and it was just bogus accusation after bogus accusation. And I think actually the, the, the problem we had was that you've got a kind of optics left in the UK. There are, um, you know, there's, there'll sort of be sort of pro-Palestinian as long as it doesn't really cost them anything. Mm-hmm. And the moment there's sort of a moment where you know, their brand could be damaged or donors would withdraw or they'd lose their seat on a mainstream media panel show, uh, they retract. And unfortunately, the Corbyn project kind of allied itself with, with the optics left. And, and I think the advice internally was to kind of try and focus on the domestic agenda, apologise, you know, as if this was a good faith um, campaign and it would go to, we could put it to bed and move forward. We all knew you know, those of us who've been involved in Palestinian solidarity and, and socialism for, for longer than five minutes, you know <laughs> that if you're going to do this seriously, you can count on a hostile press and bad faith actors. So there's no point meeting these people halfway because their interest isn't in compromise, it's in destroying you um, and your project, everything you stand for. So you, you can't, it's extremely dangerous actually to indulge their kind of bogus version of reality because in doing so you delegitimize the movement itself and that's what happened you had a movement being extremely brave you know activists who were losing their jobs who were you know facing harassment abuse stalking standing up and saying do what you like i am i am not going to be intimidated into lying or accepting your fraudulent version of reality and unfortunately um, that wasn't the position that, that was adopted by by the leadership of the Labour Party. And we did warn them, this will end up costing you, you know, because ultimately they're coming for you. They're just going through us on their way to you. Mm-hmm. So every sort of one of us that you allow this to happen to, you just pave the way to the day it happens to you. And, and we were right, because look, Corbyn is now suspended from, well, he was suspended from the Labour Party on a completely bogus pretext. You know, they're simply stating the truth, which is... The, the, anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitism Zero campaign weaponized Jewish trauma in the most cynical and abusive way in order to pretend there was some endemic anti-Semitism crisis within the Labour Party when there genuinely wasn't. And, you know, the, the data that Corbyn was referring to was absolutely true. There was a surveillance poll taken, which showed that members of the public believe that 30% of Labour members were, um, you know, alleged to have taken part in anti-Semitism. The true figure was 0.3%. That's a massive overstatement of the facts. So what he said was absolutely true, and yet he was suspended for it. And 
then even though his suspension was overturned, they've basically made there's a thing called the whip, where if you know you can remove the whip from an MP in your party, and they have to be independent, they no longer stand for your party, and that's what Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has done to Corbyn, even though he's he's not done nothing wrong, he's had a suspension removed. Um, they have nevertheless stated that they won't have him back as an MP. So he has to sit now on the benches of our parliament as an independent, having served for over 40 years in the Labour Party with distinction, an absolutely solid anti-racist record in any regard for every community. Um, and long before it was trendy, this is a man who was arrested for opposing apartheid in South Africa in the 80s, while many of these people calling him a racist were backing it on the basis it was good for our economy. You know, this, this is what we're dealing with here. Um, and the, the, probably one of the most insidious aspects of this as well is that the witch hunt is particularly targeting Jewish, Jewish socialists and socialists of colour, because obviously we're um, in a conversation about racism um, more legitimate voices given our lived experience of it and so there have been you know literally yesterday we had two very prominent Jewish socialists suspended from the Labour Party simply for attempting to discuss this issue and there's you know Naomi Wimborne Idrissi who's um, one of the leaders and co-founders of Jewish Voice for Labour and we also had you know veteran Israeli Jewish uh, socialist Moshe, Moshe, sorry, Moshe Makover 84 years old, a lifetime of opposing racism and apartheid suspended. I mean, what kind of a pie is this? You know, if you want to talk about Labour having an anti-Semitism problem, I'd agree with you now, because the party is actively suppressing the speech of Jewish socialists, literally because they're Jewish, because their voices are granted weight on this issue and they don't want that to happen. I don't, you know, it's... it's it's really difficult sometimes to even find the words that are appropriately, that carry the appropriate weight for how disingenuous and evil, you know, this, this campaign truly is. So I actually have uh, both of the clips of these people talking that have been blacklisted or have been suspended and uh, provided that I can make this work in StreamYard, I wanted to play um, I just have to go get this here. Um, so let's start with uh, Naomi. Not a proper Jew, the wrong sort of Jew, self-hating Jew. I was called that for the first time when I was 19 years old at university, where I made a speech in defense of a pro-Palestinian motion. And it was in the Jewish Telegraph. And they front-paged it, this self-hating Jew. She must hate herself when she looks in the mirror. I was 19 years old. I've had people phone me up and say, we're gonna put you in a wheelchair. We know where you are. We're outside your door. Probably the worst incident was when I was with my sister at a meeting about anti-Semitism with all Jews on the panel. And people were shouting at us, capos, capos. You're called traitor Jews, capos. Capo was a Jewish inmate of a concentration camp who collaborated with the authorities. We were talking people who collaborated in annihilation of their own people. So it's a pretty bad thing to be called. And it's Jews calling other Jews. Not nice. As a Jew on the left, who is intensely anti-racist and intensely aware of what anti-Semitism is and how dangerous it is, to be called an anti-Semite oneself 
is about as low as it gets. It's a bit like being accused of paedophilia or something. I cannot really think of anything worse. And it undermines the fight against real anti-Semitism. This is one of the most frightening things for me. People have been weaponizing accusations of anti-Semitism for political ends. The fact that that is going on seriously undermines and endangers our chances of dealing with genuine anti-Semitism, which is a real threat in our society. My name is Moshe Machover. I was born in 1936 under the British mandate in Palestine. So I'm a Palestinian by birth. I am Israeli by nationality and British by naturalization. Have I encountered uh, anti-Semitism within my branch or my uh, constituency Labour Party? Uh, have I encountered anti-Semitism? Not at all. I've, I've never come across it. I believe on statistical grounds, you know, I'm a mathematician, so I work the, out the statistics. There must be some. But the accusation that the Labour Party is riven with anti-Semitism or, or, or rife with anti-Semitism or that it's, it's institutionally uh, anti-Semitic, this is, this is absurd, ridiculous. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't correspond to anything that I've seen or to any evidence that I've heard of. Everyone should choose, join the Labour Party. Jews, Muslims, people of no faith, Buddhists, I mean, whatever. I mean, it's a party which fights against racism of all, of all uh, kinds. But mainly, I mean, this is part of being a socialist party. Socialism is incompatible with uh, uh, any, any bigotry, any, any uh, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. So, of course, Jews should join the Labour Party. And everybody else is joining the Labour Party who is a socialist. You know, I'm not in the Labour Party for comfort. <laughs> you know, I'm a socialist. I'm there for defending my corner. Well, so as you said, uh, it, there's been uh, this push, and, and I, I wanted you to speak to this issue a little bit further because I noticed that there was some discussion about the extent to which Jewish people have been put on this list and and the way in which it's manifested itself um and i th i think the the conversation that i had been seeing people who have been targets go over is you know i, I think there's this discussion over whether they would just happen to be jewish and they're being targeted because they're left-wing or whether they're actually being singled out for their jewishness and i'm I'm wondering how you um, address some of that back and forth. Well, I think it's important to remember that the sort of the first prominent target of the witch hunt was Jackie Walker, who um, was at the time vice chair of Momentum, which is a, a grass was not anymore was a grassroots socialist um, organization designed to kind of support the Corbyn leadership. And Jackie herself um, is Jewish and black. So, so, so um, she was really the first kind of person that was was taken down, and that activated me. That was kind of the point at which I really engaged with this as a witch hunt. And it is clear that there have been a disproportionately high number of Jewish and non-white um, socialists being targeted by the witch hunt. It's a fact. I mean, it's 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 about a multiple of five to one. You know, and, and the, this kind of reverse. Of, of our actual representation in the party and the wider population. So I don't think there's there's much to dispute in the Jewish socialists and, and socialists of colour are absolutely being targeted by the switch hand, which should come as no surprise because, 
you know, when you look at the language in the discourse of Zionism generally, who does it save its venom for? You know, it's, it's socialist or anti-Zionist Jews and Palestinians and people of colour, mm. because it's essentially a racist movement. So we, we shouldn't really be surprised that the witch hunt itself also continues that kind of approach of, of really this kind of reverse psychology, weird gaslighting that they do. Of you have these, you know, what are essentially a lot of the people leading this witch hunt are not even Jewish themselves, they're white. Um, and they are going around to Jewish people and people of colour and telling us that, that we are the existential threat. We are the existential racist threat, which is such an abuse that I don't think anyone acting in good faith or with an IQ over five could seriously take as, as a legitimate argument. And that's the problem that we're in, is that this is not a good faith argument. We have, you know, a media, a whole kind of light entertainment, Twitter, blue tick community, um, and uh, toxic politics, which has completely disconnected from reality altogether, and is solely about maintaining control. Mm. That's all this is about. And they will say anything that they need to say they will hobble any person that they need to hobble in order to continue that process. And it's one of the things I think which we should take solace in in all this is it is only the courage of every single person that has refused to cow to this witch hunt that has forced them actually to escalate and escalate and escalate their attacks to the point at which it is clear to anyone reasonable that this is a bad faith process. And that's great because I, I think over time, the same as Senator Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was having a cracking time at the time of that witch hunt. He thought he was the bee's knees. He had all the media on his side. He had a great five minutes in the sun. But he has become synonymous with authoritarian, anti-democratic lies. And that is exactly the fate of this group of people. And it's our job as journalists to bring that day forward um, to the soonest possible moment. Because, you know, in the words of Victor Serge, after all, you know, the tr truth does matter. You know, I think what's interesting here is with what you're telling us about what's happening in the UK is the parallels that you see in the US. And it's not necessarily, mm. obviously in the US, you know, the, it is still a big deal for you to speak out against Israel. There are professional consequences. However, there is much more space in the US than existed five or 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are prominent figures in Congress that actually support, B, support BDS. And yeah. calling them anti-Semites, you know, didn't really work to mm. take away their power. In the US, we have a bit of a different issue uh, where, you know, people who oppose imperialism, um, yeah. that's the big attack line is you're called like a supporter of dictators. You know, we have this, this Assadist, right? That's a big term yeah. in the U S calling someone an Assadist, a Putin apologist. So the big issues are, you know, Russia, um, being a possible Russian asset, right? Like that's, that's where the McCarthyism got out of control in the U S um, more so than the anti-Semite thing. But what I find about the two, these two parallel, these parallels is that, um, at the end of the day, this is an attempt by the state apparatus, mm -hmm. by people in power, by elites 
to use this wedge issue in order to prevent um, a sort of like unified movement against neoliberalism. Um, mm -hmm which is growing, especially in the global north, because of the rising level of inequality. Uh, yep. And, you know, the and, and, and as a result, I mean, they're using it to attack the left, ultimately. Um, yes. And I, I do think it's interesting that the US and the UK, and I don't know if Kevin has anything to add to this, but have kind of taken different um, strategies on this, whereas the UK, it's much more Israel, it's much more around the Israel-Palestine issue. In the U.S., it's much more about the around the you know sort of new Cold War, the issue of Russia infiltrating all our elections and deciding yeah. who gets elected. Um, but I think uh, perhaps the the perhaps the key difference I think is that actually we have, and you know, poll after poll shows this. There is still a strong socialist tradition in the U.K. Socialism never quite got as effectively stigmatized in the U.K. as it did in the U.S. So, and so almost most people need to pretend that they really want an NHS and they really want these fair things. So they can actually fight us ideologically, um, honestly. They have to come around it another, another way. And I think it's really instructive to look at that smear campaign against Corbyn as it evolved and the way that they did just shamelessly try thing after thing, just to see which stuck. And I think in, in, in they do the same in the States. I don't think they particularly care uh, which one sticks. They just yeah. care that they can land a smear effectively and persuade enough people that that's the reason. It's the, it's the classic thing of kind of narcissistic behavior. You know, when you, we, you, you're literally gaslighting people. You're saying one thing, but you're actually really another entirely and, and we you know we had a we have a whole liberal kind of class here um of sort of middle class comedians entertainers you know those, those sorts of people who are actually economically conservative mm. um but sort of generally socially liberal as well like they, they, like they, they like they, they like gay people like they're exactly like, they're like, like yeah so <laughs> they've kind of got on board with the sort of new labor neoliberal movement they love that because it allowed them to do two things it allowed them to remain economically conservative and support this completely unjust economic system which is causing untold pain all around the world and in our country too while um, appearing like friendly liberal kind of lovely people and what the corbyn project did was out these people because the Corbyn project said you cannot choose between these two things. You cannot be an economic conservative and a social liberal because economics is not separate from social liberalism. You know, ultimately there are there are if you have an unjust economic system, it has social consequences. So they're not separate issues. And so these people had to find the justification for why they weren't pro-Corbyn. You know, you had this amazing diverse movement massive you know massive but we came it was the largest socialist party yeah. <laughs> in europe you know it's ha over half a million members across all faith groups and, and ethnicities massive support among the young just all of this energy and hope and these people had to explain why they weren't backing it so obviously they couldn't come out and say well actually we just really love our mansions and we actually quite like things the way they are we didn't really <laughs> want to tinker too much with the status quo because that would completely destroy their brand so this anti-semitism which had allowed them to find a, a fig leaf liberal supposedly liberal argument against 
this movement for justice and equality, which didn't expose them. And it's really not that different in the States, I think. What, you know, the, the, the sort of the red button in the States is the patriotism issue. Yeah. You know, the idea that you would somehow be enabling foreign um, agents to, to you know, trash US democracy. Um, I know I, I reported in the States for about three years, um, and it was sort of a, so I was reporting in the US for the US presidential election in 2016, 2015, 2016. And it was just seeing that it's the same but different. You know, as you say, like they might pick what, different topics. The the also, thing. the different topics, but the other thing, you know, now that you kind of just made me think of this in the US, that really, that does parallel to this as well particularly within the Democratic Party. Obviously, Bernie mm. Sanders is not Jeremy Corbyn. Their, their politics are different. Corbyn's much more of a leftist. Um, yes. But in the U.S. context, Sanders, like the most leftist presidential candidate we've ever had in my lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, and who, who, got, who made it that big. And one of the things that they used against Sanders, because, you know, there was a lot of horror when Sanders got up on the debate stage with Hillary Clinton in, in, in Brooklyn, of all places, back in 2016, and said that Palestinians yeah. deserve dignity and respect and everybody was like horrified but bernie sanders is also <laughs> this like old jewish man he's like it doesn't get more jewish than bernie sanders like yeah it's like that's a big part of his identity so it was very difficult to use the anti-semitism smear with him but you know what did work with bernie sanders inside the democratic party is the identity politics of mm -hmm. And that's what works. That's what works with liberals in the U.S. is identity yeah. politics, not in the Jewish sense, because they use Jewish identity politics in the U.K., but in the sense of, well, Bernie Sanders is an old white man and he's standing mm. in the way of a woman becoming president. Um, yeah. Bernie Sanders, like his and then they also tried to uh, reframe socialists like or redistributive policies that would mm. obviously lift everybody up as being like a, as being anti-black. Like Bernie Sanders called for free college. And then they trotted out these like pro-corporate, uh, like m black members of Congress to say, well, if you're going to give everyone free college, then historically black colleges are going to go bankrupt. So that's actually racist. Absolutely. Yeah, they, actually... they do this. Yeah. And the irony is they couldn't have they couldn't have had an Islamophobia witch hunt. No. They couldn't have had a black witch hunt because those are the most pervasive forms right. of racism right. um, in the UK. So they actually, it, it just wouldn't have stuck. And we know that for a fact because we just literally weeks ago had um, a report into Labour Islamophobia, which showed 30% of Muslim members of the Labour Party had witnessed Islamophobia in the party. The party has made no response. The press has just completely ignored it. Months ago, we had um, a leaked report from the Labour Party, which showed staff inside the Labour Party Firstly, actively conspiring to lose the 2017 general election. So this is their own WhatsApp messages. This is their own little messages to each other, laying out how they were taking money out of important campaigns and putting it into campaigns that weren't working, how they were deliberately delaying investigations into anti-Semitism to cause pressure on the leadership and make it look like they were dragging their heels. Uh, they were using abusive language. They called um, a, a a black member of um, Labour pube head, which is over taking the you know mick out of, out of black hair, which we all know is a common um, insult. They were harassing our Britain's first black um, Labour, well, first black female MP, Diane Abbott, um, had literally been in the toilets of, the, of our parliament crying because she, she had a hell of a day with racist abuse 
And these people were celebrating the fact that they'd actually sent journalists to that bathroom to harass her further. Wow. And this report came out. Keir Starmer says, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll have an inquiry into it, but we can't speak about it until the inquiry is completed. Seven months later, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So there is a massive slap in the face here about a double standard where there is... I mean, yes, this week we had racist deportations happening in this country. We've got um, people who've been who've been charged with crimes, um, who've lived in this country their entire lives, been deported to Jamaica, a country they've never visited. Jesus. 50 of them were in the middle sent of a pandemic, to a no less. In the middle of a pandemic. In, yeah, no in the middle of a pandemic with no money, no recourse to funds. They've got no family over there, nothing. And the Labour Party was silent on it. Mm-hmm. So the idea that these people are anti-racist is is a joke because they have done not just nothing for people of colour. You know, they're actively agitating against our interests at every possible turn. Um, you know, even not supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, which is what makes this witch hunt even more offensive than it, than it would be otherwise, is that these people aren't even anti-racist. They don't care. They, no, they'll they call the Black Lives Matter movement anti-Semitic in a heartbeat. As soon as, as soon as anyone waves a Palestinian flag, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, they've literally trying, they're literally trying to, to make the Palestinian flag itself an anti-Semitic statement. It's, it's so incredibly offensive and injurious to Palestinian people who ultimately are the victims of all of this. You know, that's what I, I think we need to keep bringing this back to as well. The real victims of this Although it's a pain in the ass for us, we don't like it. This is un- deeply unpleasant and it shouldn't be happening. But we are not the victims of, of this. The, the real victims are the people living under occupation in Palestine, facing arrest, torture, abuse every day, not to mention being killed from you know military equipment in the sky, on the ground and in the sea. Um, and it's also the victims of neoliberalism all around the world in our own countries who, you know, are really struggling with, with poverty and with ill health and with depression and anxiety and everything that comes along with poverty and inequality. And a really ultimately tiny group of people who want to hoard wealth and power and are so unwilling to share any of it that they will lie shamelessly and hurt whoever they need to hurt in order to keep that iniquitous status quo in place. And I'm just proud as punch, frankly, of, of all of the activists and you guys over in the States, our guys here and everyone around the world who continues to flag this regardless. Because you know, ultimately, we'll, that's how we'll win this. You know, you know, you're absolutely right. And it's... Um... It's also like you keep saying offensive and it, it, it can't be said enough how offensive it is the way that yeah. uh, Zionism and those allied with, you know, Israeli apartheid and really maintaining, you know, the status quo of this like unequal world economy that we live under uh, have used this smear of anti-Semitism, which is a, historically a very serious thing um, and the Holocaust itself to repeatedly like justify an ongoing unequal system. Like I've even seen calling out, like you mentioned a small, a small group of people are hoarding all this wealth, right? There is like in the U S I think the number is pretty jarring in the UK, but it's worse in the U S I think in the U S we have three billionaires 
like Bill Gates, Je Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, who have more yep. wealth than the bottom half of the country. That's yep. like 150 million people, more than 150 million people. That's yep. an insane number. And pointing that out, actually we'll get pointing out that we have an oligarchy in the US has actually yeah. gotten me I've been called an anti-Semite for that before. And I'm like, you guys Jeff, I'm like, you guys know Jeff Bezos isn't even Jewish. Like, where are you even going with well, that? Well, it's, it's also like, because they are being anti-Semitic themselves when they made the accusation. Because well, also, but also I mean, it doesn't, but no, but, but I see where you're going with it. You can make that. Yeah, but it's, like, it's important that all Jews are rich. And Bill, but Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates aren't like, aren't even Jew, Jewish. Like, yeah. so you're telling me, Kalia, they're literally saying that, yeah. that criticizing billionaires is an yeah. anti-Semitic act. Like when, yeah. the, like even non-Jewish billionaires, like what? It's, That's literally it's like, it's crazy. unbelievable. But, but yeah, they're also exactly they're You're actually, it's actually anti-Semitic to suggest mm. like that. Cause you're trying to link being a billionaire with being Jewish. You're trying to link yeah. being elite with being Jewish. And that's not accurate. Um, yeah. And that's the actual anti-Semitism, but it's, but yeah. it's amazing. It's just, it's really disgusting um, mm -hmm. and offensive. Like you say, to repeatedly use one of the biggest crimes of the last century to justify inequality and racism around the globe. And that is what is happening here. And that's it it's disgusting. Is. It's just I mean, we've got we've got an amazing guy in our country. You may have heard of him, Andrew Feinstein, who who mm. served in the ANC in apartheid South Africa. He fought is he's Jewish socialist. He fought apartheid in South Africa, um, you know, as a, as an ally of of Black South Africans. And he lost himself thirty nine members of his family in the Holocaust. So he's got this kind of connection to both the Holocaust and apartheid. And he was suspended from Twitter this week. <laughs> <laughs> Are you by the witch hunt. Was he? Really? I'm absolutely serious because Andrew, you know, has repeatedly um, and publicly said, you know, that it is absolutely justified to compare apartheid Israel to apartheid South Africa. There is there is a complete legitimacy in this in this comparison, and and you either have to know nothing about about the occupation of Palestine um, or be a bad faith actor to argue anything else. Mm. And so he was then, he joined the list of us who were, who were under attack, you know, being uh, suspended from Twitter and everything else. So it is, it has come to that point where you have, you know, people, and you know, I feel like this myself, I, I'm not Jewish, but I'm a socialist, I'm a mixed race person and I'm autistic. Like when I first, learned about the Holocaust, it felt relevant to me. Yeah, It wasn't something to me that was outside of me. It was something that if I was in Nazi Germany at the time, or if Nazi Germany had defeated us in the war, I would not exist. That was really clear to me. Mm. And that began really my kind of obsession with learning everything I could about fascism, learning everything I could about how the how propaganda works and how it changes people's minds and to take an active role in agitating against it wherever I saw it. And that ultimately landed me in Palestine. You know, the, those, those things were connected to me. You can't oppose, you know, the, as I say, the Holocaust wasn't bad because it happened to Jewish people or because it happened to autistic people or it happened to old people. It was bad because it happened. Mm. You know, if, if your only interest in it is the ethnicity of the group considered subhuman, 
you're not an anti-fascist. You know, if, if your interest in, you know, socialism is only for your own ethnic group or a limited <laughs> yeah. number of ethnic groups, mm-hmm. you're not a socialist. The whole point about being an anti-fascist and or a socialist is that your values are universal. That is the point. And so, you know, there is no way on earth you can separate these causes and say, oh, let's pull back from from this issue because it's, you know, we'll never get our socialist agenda if we try and bring back people with us or Palestinians with us or whatever. And, And it's, you know, I really... I cannot stand, to be honest, the people that call themselves socialists or anti-fascists or whatever who who actually don't fight these fights because yeah, ultimately they're intimidated. We have the, I mean, we have the same problem in the U.S. too, but it's more. Um... I don't know. I feel like most people on the socialist left in the U.S. are totally willing to say they're pro-Palestine. That's not so much of an issue here. More, it's a, the gen- more general issue of imperialism. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think you probably see you probably see the little conversations that happen, the little fights that break out. But I mean, oh, yeah, we absolutely do. <laughs> so it seems like we're dealing with a lot of the same things. In so if I ways. so if I could jump in here, I I didn't want to interrupt that really great exchange between both of you. But there's a few things I I think are really important to what you're saying. I mean, you're talking about identity here, and I've seen the frustration on social media over the last week over the fact that there's been a complete and total ignorance of the millions of people going on strike in India. Um, yeah. And it seems like we're, we're, we're choosing to not see an entire you know group or nationality of people and pretend like they don't exist, and probably because our governments have aligned themselves with the the Modi government of India, and so you know we're doing a, the, that government a favor. Uh, There's another thing that crosses my mind here. Um, I, I had the opportunity or time to to watch in the in the past week, and it's received rave reviews. And I don't know if you have any feeling, but and you talk about the legacy of racism um, in the UK. Um, I have to recommend the the Mangrove film that was made by Steve McQueen because I think mm-hmm. that it's a very beautiful film. And especially, you know, I, I'm not going to give any gloss to Steve McQueen that he doesn't have. I'm just going to talk about the piece of art in and of itself as it is viewed by people who maybe have no familiarity with his politics and, and, and keep him, the artist, separate from the piece of work. But as as it stands, you know, this is a story that um, I didn't know as um, someone who is not from the UK. Um, and it was also remarkable to me because, um, you know, just, just to basically set it up for, for Ronnie and anybody else who doesn't know, um, this, is, this is involving a restaurant that was basically a space for black people um, in Nottingham Hill, right? Where people could come and they could find a, a, a reprieve from the systematic oppression that was going on in their daily lives. Um, that was targeted by police. And so, uh, but what was remarkable to me is to see this playing out in the Old Bailey where Julian Assange has been dragged to. Um, I'm not yeah. suggesting that what he's enduring is anything racist or anything like that, but it was just remarkable to see that on display. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm bringing into the conversation the the, the fact that there, that some of the culture is taking a stand, I think, against the neoliberal uh, strand of entertainment that is is more dominant in our our spheres of life. But um, perhaps a more substantial question is if you could point us in the direction of where you see some of the most um, inspiring or potentially uh, successful pockets of 
resistance. Um, I note that there's something called the Left Legal Fighting Fund that is yeah. trying to give people um, some support as they build solidarity when they are targeted. Um, and you spoke um, as, as we were beginning this conversation, as we were about to go into this broadcast, you spoke about the need to build platforms and have ways mm -hmm. for us to do this work without disruption. So maybe that's something um, as we're uh, as we're nearing the end of our conversation, you would like to focus upon the kinds of efforts at solidarity and resistance that you do see being positive in their potential effects and impact. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, because there actually is so much to be proud of and to be excited by right now. And I think firstly, given we're talking about anti-imperialism and sort of to some degree, American and British, well, I should say English, exceptionalism, um, there are lessons to be learned from all over the world, right? We don't even have to look at our own shores. You know, look what's happening in Latin America at the moment. You know, you have Chile, you know, ending, the, <laughs> literally tearing up the Pinochet um, constitution. You have Bolivia, you have, there is so much kind of going on there that we can learn from in terms of people's movements, people's socialist movements, organizing um, outside of elite networks and the establishment, you know, using their collective um, bargaining power to, to become a political force that then actually establishes its, itself and, and can make systemic change. Um, that's happening to some degree in the UK. And the, the dynamic here is particular because obviously in the UK, we consist of several nations. It's not just England, even though England likes to pretend that the UK is just England. Um, there is Wales, there is Scotland, and, and there is also Northern Ireland. And um, Scotland, basically several years ago, just told Westminster political parties to go go to hell. And their own party, the, the Scottish National Party, um, literally is almost all the MPs now in their entire country. They've just kicked out Labour and the Conservatives. There is no, the two main parties, the two main UK parties have no footprint now in Scotland. And as a result, it's probably going to become an independent nation outside of the United Kingdom very soon, possibly next year, but definitely within the next 10. Wales is now going the same way. Support for independence in Wales is now up to just under 40%. Um, and it's as high as 80% in young people. So again, five to 10 years, Wales could be off as well. You're just going to get a little lone England <laughs> on its own, um, I think. And I want that to happen, actually, because I think that will finally, I think, have the English left, leave the Labour Party behind, create their own movements like Wales and Scotland did. And it will also then instead, it will be far tougher to hide um, to so, you know, successful socialist countries right on the border, um, which is what neoliberal systems do. They just ignore all the successful socialist countries. They just pretend they don't exist. You know, they just reference, kind of, they still got to go back to kind of communist Russia or North Korea. Um, you know, neither of which are socialist countries. That's a, that's a different kind of politics. Um, and they just ignore all the, all the success of socialism. And what we're now seeing is a rising socialism across Europe. We're seeing a rising socialism across, socialism across Latin America, which is, has taken a real genuine empowered political shape. Um, and here in, in the UK, we're seeing the same with both Wales and Scotland, um, really quite markedly moving to the left, 
um, to answer the, the issues in their, in their nations caused by neoliberalism and this sort of disaster capitalism, which is still sadly very popular in England. Um, so there's that, which is, which is sort of one part of it. The other part of it is the more day-to-day day tactics of it. And I think the left legal fighting fund is, is so important because the, it has effectively really damaged the lawfare approach that, that the witch hunt was taking, which was these vexatious libel suits, because the moment we were all backed up um, with a big kitty and we could start firing back at them, ooh, all of a sudden they changed tack. Um, so the more we can support initiatives like that, the other thing is is really to support independent media because we we have to be able to tell these stories. We have to be able to communicate en masse about these issues. And that is not going to happen in the establishment media. It just simply is not going to happen. These are billionaire-owned, establishment-run organisations. You might have one investigation every five years that is basically the exception to the rule. Um, but other than that, their entire machinery is dedicated to this ceaseless propaganda, this anti-socialist, imperialist, um, and frankly racist um, discourse, which is ironic that you have at the same time this anti-Semitism witch hunt. Meanwhile, you've got a government which is you know, deporting people and you know, putting kids in cages, the same as Donald Trump. Yep. So those are the sort of the key things. It's, it's making sure that we have a strong way to challenge the legal, um, the immoral legal efforts to shut us down. Then you have to create a robust independent media that can challenge these narratives um, successfully. And when we say independent media, we mean truly independent. We don't need a couple of hipsters with a YouTube channel. Frankly, <laughs> <laughs> more damage to this movement than help it. Um, and we need to stop this exceptionalism that is ingrained in us as Westerners from a very early age that says we are the forefront of everything. So if we haven't got socialism here, it can't be winning anywhere. When actually socialism is winning in a lot of places mm -hmm. right now, we are behind the curve and, and we need to kind of grow up a bit. And I think learn to learn from movements around the world in, in ways that I think are new to, to people, particularly in England in the state and the states, because we just are so infected with this idea that, that we rule the world, um, that, that we forget that we don't really, you know, we just, you know, neoliberalism rules the world and, and yes. we just have agents of neoliberalism in our countries that are very effective, that's, that's it. So uh, why don't you take a moment to uh, tell us and everyone who's been watching our conversation and listening about the Canary and how they can support it and support your work, and then we will wrap. Oh, thank you very much for that. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, we've actually got a membership drive happening at the moment at the Canary. Um, we've taken a big, bold step and created an investigative unit and a video unit and lots of things, hired new journalists, but we can't continue to fund them without your support. So please join us. We've got a campaign called The Canary 5K, which is our hashtag on Twitter. You can go to thecanary.co, that's just co, forward slash support, become a member. Um, we are a full service newsroom, so we're pumping out stories seven days a week. Um, every week, um, all year, for you, which are independent and kind of untainted by this establishment nonsense. So do join us. And if the canary isn't to your taste, seriously, go back 
anyone else who's doing a similar thing because ultimately we are one team. Excellent. Well said. All right. Well, and then just for people who follow our show, I'll give the standard pitch, uh, which actually includes a new element. And I saw Rania, you uh, you uh, were talking with Katie Helper about it. Um, you did and pretty I, good. I, I you did like, pretty good. But then you got stuck. Kevin. I was like, Kevin knows. That's Kevin. <laughs> You're like trying to pull me in. Um, but yeah, so we have a bit of a presence on rockfin.com right now, and we're just experimenting with it to see if it as a platform could be good for us. And so far okay. I'm, I'm relatively pleased with it. So anyone who goes and directly subscribes through our channel is going to give us uh, the, the biggest uh, bang for our buck. But um, if you do follow us on the platform as well, that also helps us. Um, and this is a way to bundle content. I don't know if you know about this, Carrie Ann, but they're doing oh, this, ex this experiment experiment where um, rather than you competing against each other, you sign up for the platform Rockfin, you subscribe through the show you want to directly support, but then you have access to every single other show that is uploaded on the content. You get access to all of the premium content. So like, for example, if the Canary had a show, you could subscribe yeah. to the Canary's um, show or podcast yeah. and then people could watch our premium content as well as yours, but they are logged into the system as your subscribers and you get the benefit from them every um, month as they subscribe. It's just $10. It's, I don't know what that would be in euros, but uh, it's probably more. But... The, same at the, moment. The, the price is depreciating so quickly. It's <laughs> but yeah, so, so we've got this. And then to end my pitch, if you go to patreon.com, we still have our presence there and you can subscribe to us um, and, and, and become a patron there. So it was great to talk to you, Carrie Ann. It really was. You were lovely. I learned a lot. And we would love to have you back on at some point in the future, hopefully to talk about some more good news, as I always say. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. We'll would have to return the favor as well and get you guys talking to our UK audiences. That'd be great. <laughs> All right. And we'll be back next week with another episode.